We are in a teaching series called The Signs of the Times. We are looking at the Olivet Discourse, which was Jesus' prophetic word about what the end times would look like. And we're looking at it so that we, as his followers in these days, can see the signs that are ahead of us and that we can know what to do, right? We want to understand the times and we want to know what to do so that we can live as his followers in these days. And so, so far in this series, we have looked at, uh, first off, that Jesus prophesied the complete destruction of the temple, which is an encouragement to us that his word is true. We looked at deception, that in the coming days, we're going to see more and more deception, more false prophets, uh, more false teachings coming into the church and trying to lead us astray. And then last Sunday, thank you so much for letting me go to dad camp, by the way. Uh, Hannah and I had a glorious time. Uh, I turned my phone off. I put it away. And for two days, I wasn't Pastor Aaron. I was just Hannah's dad. And it was an amazing weekend. So thank you for that. But Shannon preached in my stead last week, and, uh, and she did a phenomenal job. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're saying, more Shannon, less Aaron. <laughs> but when I texted the team and said, hey, how did Shannon do? The first response I got was, for such a difficult sermon, Shannon's steady voice was exactly what we needed. And so last week, she talked about wars and natural disasters, and, and thank God for that steady voice that we can be calm and peaceful and confident, knowing that God is in control, even as we see wars and natural disasters increase in our day. And so if you thought that was bad news, let's, uh, let's get into today's sermon. <laughs> uh, part three, we're going to look at persecution and betrayal persecution and betrayal. So if you've got your notes, you can find the notes in your bulletin. They're on our church app. They're attached to this video on our website, and they're attached to this audio if you're listening to the podcast. Here's our big picture point today. As followers of Christ, we must be prepared for increasing persecutions in the last days so that we will not fall away from the faith. We have got to be ready, and that's going to be our goal as we go through the sermon today. By the end of the sermon, I want us to be ready as a people of God to say no matter how bad it gets, we're going to stand firm. That's what we need in this day as followers of Christ. And as Shannon shared last week, when we can be calm and steady in the midst of the chaos, people are going to be drawn to that. And today we're going to learn that if we can stand firm when everything is coming against us, people are going to be drawn to that. And, and that is our hope in these days. Amen? So we're in Matthew chapter 24, which is the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus on the Mount of Olives sharing with his disciples. They asked the question, what will be the signs of the last days? And Jesus began to answer their questions. And, and then we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 as we get to the, this next part of the answer. Jesus says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Amen. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. All right, that's, that's not the good news. That's the bad news, okay? We want to we wanna get into the good news today, but we got to be real about this. This is what Jesus says the last days are going to look like. And so we're going to look at persecution and betrayal. Let's start with persecution. Persecution is going to come from outside the church. 
from outside the church. And Jesus gives us three words when he talks about the persecution that's going to come. The first word he says is tribulation. In those days, there will be tribulation. And remember, we're talking about birth pains, which Shannon reminded you last week, I know nothing about. Um, But we're talking about birth pains. We're talking about this thing is going to get steadily worse, steadily increasing in intensity, steadily coming more and more, quicker and quicker, until we get to the last days. So as we look at tribulation, we need to understand that tribulation is already happening. We are blessed in the United States of America that we don't face this level of tribulation. Open Doors International is a a ministry that actually researches the persecuted church. And they said this, that 360 million Christians experience extreme persecution because of their faith. That's one out of every seven believers around the world faces extreme persecution because of their faith. They actually do a study every year, and they release the 50 most dangerous countries to be a Christian in. And so 2023, they released their list. And so here is a map. The the red ones are the top 10. And then the orange ones are the next most dangerous after the top 10. And so in the top 10, you can see is North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan, and then India pops in there at number 11. And what you notice when you look at this map is that most of these nations fit within one corridor. And in missions work in the church, they call it the 1040 window. It's from 10 degrees north latitude to 40 degrees north latitude. Within that window, you have northern Africa, you have the Middle East, and you have southern Asia. And within that window, you have most of the Muslims, the Hindus, and the Buddhists that live in the world. Most of them live within that window. And within that window, you also have the most unreached people groups in the world. And you also have the most dangerous places in the world to be a Christian. So within that window, that 1040 window, we see that the church comes under extreme persecution. So this is not something that's going to happen later. This is something that's happening in our day, and it's going to increase. And we are blessed in America that we don't face that type of persecution. I know sometimes we feel sorry for ourselves, and we say we're persecuted. They made us wear masks to church. We're persecuted. No, we're not. Because here's the thing. In America, every time that the government does something that we feel unlawfully targets the church, we can go to court and stand up for our constitutional rights. In this map, none of those churches, none of those people can do that. But we can in America. But is the day coming when that kind of persecution will be in America? And if it is, is his church ready? He says there will be tribulation and you will be killed. Right? We talk about divine protection, and we love the fact that God does protect us and watch over us, but God doesn't promise that we're going to live forever. Some of us may get old and die of old age, but some of us may be killed for our faith. Of the original 12 apostles, 11 of them were murdered for preaching Jesus. And the 12th one, they tried to murder him, and they just couldn't because God had a special assignment for him on the island of Patmos. You will be killed. 
According to a, a research study that was published, uh, I believe, in December of 2019, they determined that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred throughout history. Martyr is just a fancy word that means you are murdered for your faith. More than 70 million Christians have been murdered throughout history for their faith. More than half of those occurred in the 1900s alone. In the 2000s, approximately 1 million are martyred every 10 years in the 2000s. That's a typo, not the 200s. You do the math, that's 274 every single day. That means today, around the world, 274 followers of Christ are going to be murdered for professing the name of Jesus every single day. And the Bible says that's only going to get worse. He says there will be tribulation, you will be killed, and you will be hated for my name's sake. This is an important distinction that we are hated because of the name of Jesus. Listen, if you're a jerk and people hate you because you're a jerk, that is not persecution. That is just the natural byproduct of being a jerk. When we're talking about people hating us for his name's sake, they're hating us for no other reason than we say the name of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do for, to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. We are going to be hated for no other reason than we say the name of Jesus. And I love how John Stott says this. He's a theologian and a, a writer and a teacher. He said this, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. The reason the world hates us is because the world's value system is so much different than Jesus' value system. And when those value systems clash, there is no room for reconciliation, and so the world will choose to hate us instead. We've got to be ready for that. We've got to be okay with that. Persecution comes from outside the church. Let's talk about betrayal. Betrayal, on the other hand, comes from inside the church. When Jesus says you will be betrayed by one another, he's talking about your Christian brothers and sisters actually betraying you. The most, uh, I guess the easiest way to assume that this is going to happen is that in the last days, when persecution comes against the church and people are looking to murder Christians... They will find your brother and sister in Christ and say, if you'll give up the rest of the church, we'll let you live. And they, in their weakness, will give up the rest of the church, and we will be betrayed by our brothers and sisters. Betrayal, by its very definition, has to come from somebody close to you. 
right? Somebody that you've trusted, somebody that you've let your guard down and you've let them come into your life and, and you've shared fellowship with them and you've shared your heart with them, which is what makes betrayal so painful because it comes from somebody so close. The Bible teaches this idea of the great apostasy. Apostasy is just a fancy word that means somebody who has fallen away. The Bible says that there is going to be this apostasy, this falling away of believers from the church. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul said it like this, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, what is he talking about? The second coming of Jesus. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. There is going to be a falling away of believers. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul said it like this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So one of the things we're going to see happen in the end times is we're going to see Christians falling away because that deception we talked about two weeks ago is going to get into the church and it's going to divide people from the truth, and they're going to fall away. And when there is this falling away, what we're going to have now is we're going to have people out in the world who intimately know us within the church, but who now have no loyalty or love for us, and they're going to betray us. We're already seeing some of this play out in our day, right? There's this thing called deconstruction, right? Which deconstruction means that you're going through a process of taking something that you used to hold dear and taking it apart piece by piece. And so when it comes to the faith, people are deconstructing their faith. They're taking the things that were core values in their life and they're starting to tear them apart. Now, I believe there's a healthy way to do deconstruction, That when people go through that process, at the end, they will come full circle and realize, yes, this is what I believe. But there's also an unhealthy way to do it, and the world is encouraging that unhealthy way. And that is to get onto social media and to make declarations like, I no longer believe in Jesus. I no longer follow the Bible. I used to believe this, but I don't believe this anymore. And we're seeing these declarations all over social media. Could this be the early days of this great apostasy that people are, are falling away? But betrayal is very personal. The two main betrayals that happened in the Bible, the first one that ever happened in the history of time, was when Lucifer betrayed God, which set off a civil war in heaven, and Lucifer and one-third of the angels were cast out of heaven, and we know him today as the devil and his demons. The other great betrayal in the Bible was Judas betraying Jesus, right? Somebody that Jesus had allowed to get close to him betrayed him and turned him over to the authorities. But we see it all throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve betrayed God, and then Cain betrayed his brother Abel, and then Jacob betrayed his brother Esau, and then Joseph was betrayed by his 11 brothers and and was sold into slavery. Uh, We see David was betrayed over and over again, even by his own son who launched a coup against him and took the throne from him. One betrayal that is not that obvious in the Bible that we don't talk about a whole lot is a man named Alexander the coppersmith who gave his life to Christ and he was a part of the church. But then he was seduced away by these doctrines of demons that we just talked about. And Alexander the coppersmith betrayed Paul 
and turned Paul over to the Romans. And the greatest evangelist and church pastor or church planter that ever lived was murdered because a former believer betrayed him. David wrote it like this in the Psalms when he experienced this betrayal from his own son. He said, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Right? If our enemies are mean to us, we're like, well, they're supposed to be. He says, nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Right? David is expressing this deep wound, somebody he worshiped with, fellowshiped with, somebody who he had opened his heart to, betrayed him. And he is experiencing this intense pain. Betrayal is going to be a part of the last days, and we're going to see it increase. Are you guys still with me? All right. We're going to take a little rabbit trail here, and then we're going to get to the important question, which is what are we to do? And the little rabbit trail is this. As we talked about the last day's timeline, one of the things that we, I said I was putting off for a couple weeks was talking about the rapture. And now I've put it off for a couple of weeks, and now it's important to talk about now, and I'm going to bring it full circle, and you're going to understand why I'm talking about it now. The rapture is this concept that we, as the followers of Christ, the church, is that at the second coming of Christ, we are going to be caught up together with Jesus. The most clear teaching on it in the Bible is in 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul wrote this, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort, comfort one another with these words. Right? So we've got this picture that at the second coming of Christ, the trumpet sounds, all of this, we're going to be caught up together in the air with Jesus. If you remember from three weeks ago, we put this real simple timeline up of what the last days look like. We currently live in the church age which goes from the day of Pentecost until the second coming of Jesus. The last seven years of the church age is known as the tribulation or the great tribulation. And then there's the second coming. Then there's the millennial reign. And then there's the great white throne where we will all stand in judgment before the throne of God. And then we will go into eternity. Those of us whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will go into eternity in the new heaven and the new earth with God and with Jesus. Amen. So that's the timeline. But here's the thing. Within the church, there are several different ideas about when the rapture happens. And so I, I found this slide. I thought this was a good one. Oh, it's blurry. Dang it. Okay. I'm just going to have to read it to you because it's too blurry to read. But there's three main views in the church as to the timing of the rapture. And so what you see up here on the screen, even though it's all blurry, is, is the seven years of the tribulation. And it's broken in half to the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years. And then you'll see that there are actually three spots 
where there's different views of when the tribulation happens. There's the pre-trib, I mean, when the rapture happens. There's the pre-trib position, which says uh, it happens before the seven years of the tribulation. There's the mid-trib position, which says it happens right in the middle of the seven years. And then there's the post-trib position, which says it happens at the end of the seven years as part of the second coming of Christ. I am not here today to argue, all right? There's some really smart people that hold all three of those views and, and who can defend those views. I will share with you my view, and I will share with you why. But at the end of the day, it's up to you to decide which view you're going to hold. And if you want to talk more about it, that's great. But I don't want it to be an argument. But first off, let's talk about where does this idea even of the seven years of the tribulation come from? And why do they split it in half between the first three and a half years and the second three and a half years? Well, to get this, we have to really nerd out and go back to Daniel, which, you know, I love to nerd out on the Bible. So let's do this. Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24, Daniel says this, Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to make an end of sin. So let's stop right there and just say that Daniel is saying that there is this prophetic declaration of seven weeks before sin is going to be completely wiped out. To make atonement for iniquity. I'm sorry, we're moving on, Antonio. Uh, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place, right? So he's talking about when we're in eternity together. There is this 70-week declaration. What is he talking about with 70 weeks? Well, he's not talking about weeks of days. He's talking about weeks of years. So a week is seven years, he now breaks these 70 weeks into three sections, 7, 62, and 1. So let's read it, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So let's talk about what is he talking about here. There will be seven weeks and then 62 weeks, and then the Messiah will come. All right, well, 7 and 62 is 69. 69 times 7, we do the math really quick, it's 483 years. And he says from the decree that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. Well, where was Israel when Daniel was prophesying? They were in captivity in Babylon, which then became Persia. When were they released to rebuild Jerusalem? approximately around 483 B.C. How long did it take them between Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild the temple and the walls and fully restore Jerusalem? Approximately 50 years, which would be seven weeks of years. So he says there will be seven before Jerusalem is fully rebuilt, and then there will be 62 more weeks of years, and then the Messiah will come. All right, so what I want you to see here is that, is that Daniel prophesied almost to the exact date what would happen for the next 500 years. 
All right, so come on. Like, this should get us a little bit excited. All right, God's word is true. And when God speaks, he knows what he's saying. This is ridiculous that somebody could prophesy accurately the next 500 years. But he does, and he doesn't stop there. In verse 26, he says, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. So think about this. He now says that when the Messiah comes, the Messiah is going to be cut off. Jesus was crucified, and that right after he is cut off, all of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed again. So after prophesying that it's going to be rebuilt, he's now prophesying that it's going to be destroyed. And what do we know happened after Jesus was crucified? In 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and by 90 AD, all of Jerusalem was destroyed, and Israel did not exist again as a nation until after World War II, almost 2,000 years later. Come on, Daniel prophesied it to a T. So if he got all of that right, then it's safe to assume that he got the next verse right also. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. So we had the seven, we had the 62, now we have the one week. But here's the thing. There is a gap between week 69 and week 70. We're living in that gap. The gap is the church age that we are living in now. That one week that's left is the seven years of the tribulation. That's where we get the seven years from. Are you guys with me? How will we know when the seven years start? It says, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. When the Antichrist makes a covenant of peace with Israel, that will begin the seven years of the tribulation. But in the middle of the week, so after three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he's saying the Antichrist is going to make a covenant of peace, and then halfway through the seven years, he's going to break that covenant of peace. He's going to set himself up in the temple and declare himself to be God, the desolation in the temple, and put a stop to all of the Jewish sacrifices in the temple. Are you guys with me? So that's why the seven years of the tribulation is split in half. The first half called the tribulation, the second half called the great tribulation, because it's going to be really bad in the first half, but in the second half, it's going to be really, really bad because nothing is going to restrain the Antichrist from doing his full intent of evil. So that's where we get that from, all right? Are you guys with me? We nerded out a little bit. Now... Let's talk about where do I stand when it comes to these three ideas of tribulation. I stand in post-tribulation. I believe the tribulation of the church is going to happen at the second coming of Christ. Now, my wife offers a fourth choice. If you don't like any of those three choices, Shannon declares that she is in the all-trib camp, which means she says Jesus can take me whenever he wants, and I will go. All right, so, uh, so you can make that choice as well. Why do I choose to be in the post-tribulation camp? Even though there's really 
great people in the other camps, right? Pre-tribulation, if you ever read the Left Behind books by Dr. Tim LaHaye, those are pre-tribulation. Mid-tribulation, Dr. David Jeremiah preaches mid-tribulation, and he's a phenomenal teacher. I have no argument with him. So why do I stand in the post-tribulation camp? I'm going to give you three reasons really quick. The first is this, because I love the church, and I hold the church in the highest esteem. And I believe that the church is the only institution that Jesus intended to build. And that the church is God's only instrument to advance his kingdom on the earth. And so why would God take his church, his only instrument, out of the earth seven years early when there's still people to be one for Christ? Bible says God wants all people to come to salvation. He wants everybody to have a chance. And so I do not believe that he's going to take his church out of the world seven years early. I love the church. All right, that's my first reason. My second reason is because I believe that's what the Bible says. Let's go back to Matthew 24, our Olivet Discourse with Jesus, and let's hear what Jesus says. Therefore, verse 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's what we just read in Daniel, that the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple as the abomination of desolation. Therefore, when you see this, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation." You guys following me? He says, when you see the Antichrist set himself up in the temple, then you know things are going to get really, really bad. And you should get out of town as quick as you can. And woe to those if you got a little baby with you in those times. And then there's going to be three and a half years of the great tribulation. He goes on to say this, such has, has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. He's saying these are going to be the worst three and a half years in the history of the world. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. He says if it lasted any longer than three and a half years, nobody could take it. He says, but for the sake of the elect, I'm going to cut it short, and it's only going to be three and a half years. Who are the elect? Us, the church. So what does Jesus say here? The church is still going to be there. He goes on in verse 29 to say, but immediately after the tribulation, those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect, the church, from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. When will this happen? I just read it. After the days of the tribulation, 
When will he gather his church together with him in the sky? At his second coming, when he comes riding on the clouds as Daniel prophesied. This is why I believe in post-tribulation rapture, because it's what Jesus taught. And I'm going to give you a third reason, if my first two weren't enough. Here's my third reason why I believe in post-tribulation rapture. Because if I'm going to be wrong, I'd rather be wrong on that end. Listen, if you believe in pre-tribulation rapture and you're wrong, you're not going to be prepared for the seven years of tribulation because you thought you were getting out early. If I believe in post-tribulation and I'm wrong, that just means I get to go early, right? So I'd rather be wrong on this end than be wrong on that end, all right? So if you didn't like my theological arguments, then go with my practical arguments. I want to be wrong on that end, all right? Again, I'm not going to argue with anybody who believes differently, but that's where I stand. So let's wrap this up. What are we to do? We talked about all this persecution and all of this betrayal and all of these hard things. What are we to do? I got two main points you can see. The first one is this. Be prepared. What are we to do? We're to prepare ourselves for the coming persecution and betrayal. We got to be ready for it. We can't let it catch us off guard. There was a pastor named Andrew Brunson. He was an American pastor. He went to Turkey as a missionary, planted a church, and pastored a church in Turkey for 20 years. After 20 years of faithfully serving that church, the Turkish authorities trumped up some false charges against him and went and hunted him out and arrested him and threw him into prison. And he stayed in prison for two years until the American government was able to negotiate his release. And in those two years in prison... He was left in some of the worst conditions imaginable. Isolated, no working toilets, so you had to be in a cell with your own feces. He wasn't given a Bible. He wasn't allowed any human interaction or contact. He was tortured in horrible ways. In December of 2020, after he got home, Andrew Brunson did an interview, and this is what he said. I believe the pressures that we're seeing in our country now are going to increase, right? The birth pains. And one of these pressures is going to be hostility toward people who embrace Jesus Christ and his teaching, who are not ashamed to stand for him. My concern is that we're not ready for this pressure. And not being prepared is very, very dangerous. Come on, we have got to be prepared for what is to come. We've got to take on what I call the visiting team mentality. In our lifetimes, for many decades, the church was the home team in America, right? And I'm using a sports analogy here, right? When you're the home team, you got the better locker room. You know the lay of the land because it's your stadium. So you've got your pregame routine. You know the things you like. It's set up the way you like. You know how to go through it. You know which tunnels to go down. When you run out onto the field, the crowd is cheering for you. You're the home team. For many decades in America, the church was the home team. Most people in America agreed that, yes, the church is good. Yes, we should probably go to church. Even if we don't, we would still say, yes, the church is good, and the church does great things for America, and we believe in Jesus and his teachings. Those decades have passed, and the church in America is now the visiting team. When you're the visiting team, you get the other locker room. 
and nothing is the way you like it. And if it's your first time to that stadium, you got to find your way through the tunnels. And when you come out on the field, the crowd is booing you. But there is something about being the visiting team that when you run out and everybody's booing you, that you've got this motivation, we're going to win. we got to get this thing. But if you're a visitor and you have a home team mentality and you run out and everybody's booing you, you get your feelings hurt and you don't play really well. See, I believe the church is trying to hold on to the home team mentality even though we're not the home team in America anymore. And so now that the church is getting booed publicly and the teachings of Jesus are getting booed publicly, that now we as the church are getting our feelings hurt. Let's take on the visiting team mentality and say when they're booing us, of course they're booing us. They're supposed to. We're the visiting team. But that's not going to stop us from running out on this field and playing our best and to silence the crowd because we're still going to win. We've got to take on the visiting team mentality. We got to say, we know it's going to hurt. We know it's not going to go our way. We know the culture has changed and moved away from us. And we know now that if we stand up and say anything Christian, we're going to get shouted down and booed. But our responsibility is not to win the culture, our responsibility is to win the hearts of people. And if we will have a visiting team mentality in this day and age, we will win the hearts of people. We will see them come to Christ and join the church, and the culture can just keep on booing us. And instead of getting distracted, yelling at the culture that's booing us, let's stay focused on the game on the field, which is winning the hearts of individual people. We have got to be prepared in Revelation chapter 2, as Jesus had messages for seven churches, one of those churches was the church at Smyrna. It's fun to say, Smyrna. Um, but this was Jesus' message. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Come on, we need to hear this, church. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Come on, we have to have a visiting team mentality. Jesus says they're going to boo you, they're going to throw you in jail, they're going to kill you, and Jesus doesn't say, don't worry, I'm going to come get you before it happens. No, he says, be faithful until death. No excuses, you just be faithful. We got to be prepared for that. Are you guys with me? So my second point, you'll notice I put two words in there because I couldn't decide which word to use. So I'm going to give you both of them, and you can decide which one you like. And that is either be faithful or be loyal. Man, I'm out of time. Dang it, I've gone way too long. I'm going to give you these subpoints really fast. But listen, in a world of betrayal, when everybody is turning against us, the most important thing we can do is to be faithful and be loyal. Number one, to Jesus. Be loyal to Jesus. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We very well may face a day where we have to stand up publicly and someone's going to ask us if we are loyal to Jesus. And if we say yes, great harm is going to fall upon us. 
Do we have the loyalty to say yes? Come on. What if the governments made a turn and decided that Christianity was illegal and they were going to begin targeting Christians? Would there be enough public evidence in your life that you would be targeted? Come on. Be faithful to Jesus. The Baptist evangelist John Rice said this, the world never burned a casual Christian at the stake. Sold out Christians get burned at the stake. Will we be faithful and loyal to Jesus no matter what comes against us? Be faithful to sound doctrine. Let me have the worship team come up. I got to stop. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Come on, we have got to be faithful to sound doctrine. We got to have good teaching. We got to have the Bible. We got to have the truth within us. Because if we turn our ears away to those nice teachings that tickle our ears, we're going to fall away from the faith. We have got to be faithful to sound doctrine. We've got to be faithful to God's purposes. Listen, one thing that will get us through the trials and the persecutions of this life and of the last days is when we know we're still on a mission for Jesus. And as long as we have purpose before us, we can keep the pain of betrayal in perspective. Right, Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When we can have the right perspective and say, I am on a, I'm on a mission for the kingdom of God, and no matter how bad it hurts, it's still not going to compare to the glory of eternity and all the people I get to bring with me. Stay loyal to God's purposes. Stay loyal to your church family. Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake the assembling together. Let's be loyal together because when we get separated from the church body, then we're fair game to become one of those apostates. And we might be the betrayer in this story. We have got to stay loyal to the family of God. We've got to stay connected to our brothers and sisters. We've got to nurture these relationships. We've got to keep our hearts open to one another. We've got to encourage and inspire one another. If we lose this, we're going to have a hard time in the last days. And finally, stay faithful to those that hurt you. The very ones that betray you and hate you that Jesus was talking about. He said, you've heard it said in the old days, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When we get slapped on the cheek by the world... When we get slapped on the cheek by a Christian brother or sister who has betrayed us, will we be able to turn the other cheek and stay loyal even to those who hurt us? Dr. David Jeremiah says it like this. He said, let's learn the value of loyalty in the age of treachery. Because when we stand faithful, no matter how bad it hurts, when we keep loving people, no matter how many turn against us, People will see that, and they will be drawn to that. Come on, we are called to faithfulness in these last days. We have got to be prepared for what is to come, and we've got to stand in our loyalty to Jesus and his church and his word, and we will endure to the end. Amen? Amen. Will you stand together with me? Jesus.
I'm sorry I spoke too long, but your truth is so important, Lord. And I was so passionate today to equip your church with the truth. And so, Lord, I pray that these seeds have fallen upon fertile ground and that they would produce a great harvest in our lives, Lord. I pray for your church. I pray for this church, Kauai Bible Church, for everyone here in person and everyone who's on our digital campus. I pray right now, Jesus, in your mighty name, that you would prepare us for the days that are to come. That we would not be like a boxer who's gone soft in his old age, but that we would keep that edge, that anointing, that we would have that visiting team mentality. And that we would continue advancing the kingdom of God even as the culture moves further and further away from us. Prepare us for the days of tribulation. Prepare us for the days of pain and hurt from loved ones. And keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you endured the cross, despising the shame. Lord, give us the same endurance for the cross that we must bear in these days, that your church would be a mighty force in this world, and that your church would not stop because the world comes against us. Jesus, let us spend every day pouring out every last bit of us to fulfill every last bit of your purpose in our lives, Lord. That we are your church. We are strong and mighty in you. And we will not back down. Fix our eyes on you and open our hearts to the people who are ready to receive our message. And let us continue to declare faithfully the love of Jesus in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.